news. News, 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 news. New York City. F-A-Q. Welcome to FAQ NYC. I'm producer Alex Brooklyn. I'm here with Ozzy Pabra, Professor Christina Greer, and Harry Siegel. The theme today is the New York governor's race. Ooh la la. New York is big, but Governor Andrew Cuomo has made it feel small, like a place that only has room for him. So it's a big deal that in a week, he and Democratic challenger Cynthia Nixon will have their first and only debate ahead of next month's primary. This is Nixon's first ever run for office, and it takes guts to go up against a well-funded incumbent running for a third term who has the Democratic Party pretty much on lock. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Proven leader, real results. For New York. For for New York. Andrew Cuomo, Cuomo. governor. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Making it possible. What's weird is that this will be the first debate in a Democratic primary in New York since 2006. In 2006, Elliot Spitzer was the party-backed candidate, the establishment candidate. Spitzer was challenged in the Democratic primary by a young, handsome Nassau County executive, Tom Swazi. Back in 2006, there was no anti-establishment wave to ride like there is today. And so Swazi was just kind of out there, the lone underdog. Why does it matter that there hasn't been a Democratic primary debate since 2006? Because it shows just how much power a party-backed candidate has regardless of if they are the incumbent or the proto-incumbent. Proto-incumbent, someone who already has the support of their political party above the other candidates in the race and therefore has access to many of the same resources that an actual incumbent would. So who better to explain what that's like today than the guy who tried it last time, Tom Swazi himself, the original underdog. We're about to talk to Tom Swazi. He is the last person to run a primary challenge against the New York Democratic gubernatorial candidate. The last time this happened was 2006. Tom Swazi at the time was the Nassau County executive, had a couple of victories where he beat the establishment, and he thought he could do it again running statewide. The person he was running against was Elliot Spitzer, who at the time was the New York State Attorney General, and people thought he was the future of the Democratic Party, even a possible future president. Mm -hmm. It didn't quite work out that way. But ever since then, if you are a New York Democrat, you did not see a debate between your gubernatorial candidates. In, in a primary. In a primary. So if you go backward in time, right, 2014, Andy Cuomo won't even debate Zephyr Tijak. 2010, nobody runs against Andy Cuomo. So you have to go back to 2006 to find the last time we had a Democratic debate for the top office in New York. And that year, it was Elliot Spitzer and Tom Swazi. You can do it because he's done it. What happens in a debate? You get two candidates that say, I have a better idea about how to lead the party. And we all see what happens when Democrats debate Republicans, right? There's, these kind of policy debates break down along predictable lines. And sometimes in New York, it's not even much of a debate. But when you have two people in the same party vying for their party mantle, and there's a debate, you get establishment, grassroots, and you really get a debate about whether or not they should go that far to the left or that far to the right before general election. And I don't know about you guys, but I find primary debates fascinating. 
Well, they're fascinating because sometimes there's not much daylight between the two candidates, and they're trying to make it seem like there's this substantive golf. But then I think in the case of Spitzer and Swazi, there were some substantive uh, differences. Swazi was definitely a bit to the right of Spitzer. But also, Swazi was talking about a lot of issues that we're still debating now. And in politics, they're not what we call sexy issues, you know? I mean, talking about a property cap for for 25 minutes isn't necessarily something, unfortunately, that's going to hold a lot of voters' attentions. The big difference was that Elliot Spitzer was going to be the next governor. Tom Swasey was not going to be the next governor and needed people to see him on television uh, to register the fact that he existed in this gigantic state. And that's a very difficult position to be in, especially if you don't want to embarrass yourself and you do want to show what you know and what policy differences exist in, in that sort of time frame. But- well, well, I think the reason why interviewing Congressman Swazi is so interesting for 2018. At the time, it was Spitzer's on the mountain, right? And all he has to do is just make sure he keeps his footing for an hour. And Swazi is essentially trying to roll a boulder up a mountain. We're seeing this in some ways with Cuomo. Cuomo is established on this mountain for eight years. I think that there are some some loose rocks there. However, Cynthia Nixon is the one that's charged with rolling the boulder up the hill. So he's in a very distinct vantage point. Um, and I think that there's some really great parallels between 2006 and 2018. And that's why Congresswoman Swazi is an interesting person for us to chit chat with. And Cuomo, without having to go through a primary in 2010, only had to win over voters in a general election. And he even picked up a lot of support because his challenger at the time was a Tea Party Republican that a lot of Republicans didn't like. So Cuomo didn't have to make a lot of promises to the Democratic progressive left. And therefore, he had a free reign when he went into the governor's office. 2014, Cuomo, apparently afraid to give Zephyr Teach out his challenger in the primary attention, refused to debate her. In 2018, this year, this week, Cuomo will be debating his Democratic primary challenger. And I think he's forced into that position because to not debate her would be seen as too damaging. So he does one debate where you get to see, ironically enough, what may be a very not sexy debate about property tax caps, Cuomo supports, Cynthia Nixon doesn't, cleaning up Albany. But there is this sort of donut hole where an incumbent either allows themselves to debate a challenger because they're so far behind in the polls, it doesn't matter. Or they feel like they have to because the challenger has gotten so much attention, like Cynthia Nixon, that he can't avoid it. So we're having one finally in New York State, and it's been a while. I agree with that. But I think another variable to the importance of these primaries is that we know that across the state, every election season, the number of primary voters decreases, right? We saw this in the mayor's race. Uh, last year, where all of a sudden we're dropping down to, say, 17 percent of voting eligible population actually turning out. When we look at the numbers from 2006, Spitzer versus Swazi, you know, I said Swazi got 18 percent. He corrected me. He got 19 percent. Right. But it's roughly roughly 762,000 Democrats who turned out in that primary. Fast forward to 2014, when you have Cuomo, you have Teachout and Randy Credico in the race, you have roughly 573,000 people turning out. I mean, this is a difference of 200,000 New Yorkers staying home. I do think that when we look at the numbers in 2018, we should be cognizant of 
the actual number of Democrats who come out in a primary, especially since the primary this time is going to be on a Thursday, not a Tuesday, September 13th. Check out the interview. And now, Tom, Tom Swazi. Swazi. Congressman Tom Swazi. Oh, oh, and now Congressman Tom Swazi. Your friend in ours, Congressman Tom Swazi. Tom Swazi. Ooh la. Ooh la la. Yeah, so I just think it'd be great for like you and Harry to say hello because you guys haven't maybe seen each other in a while since the campaign. Harry, how's it going? <laughs> Not bad. How's it been for you since, uh, what, 2006? 2006. Long time. 12 years. I got a couple questions for you. How do we miss the hookers? I'm still trying to get a refund from my investigators. (laughs) (laughs) How did you all, as a campaign team, miss the hookers? So I was the, uh, the policy director and then the deputy campaign manager for Tom because I basically dunned out of journalism after a thing at New York Press. Couldn't get a job and knew that Spitzer was a was a bad guy. So Tom hired me. Bad meaning bad, not bad meaning good. Tom, what were you thinking? You know, you, you had a good job, like a lot of power in Nassau, and it was Spitzer's year in his turn. And then uh, there you were. I think I was, uh, I think I was young, you know, and I had been uh, used to winning uh, long shot victories. I was, uh, I was the mayor of my hometown for eight years, Glen Cove. And, uh, when I ran for county executive, I won a primary against Tom DiNapoli at the time. And Tom DiNapoli had been endorsed by everybody in New York state. I had been endorsed by my, my mother and my wife and, and I won this uh, upset victory. And then I did the fix Albany campaign and, uh, ran a democratic primary against the democratic assemblyman. I ran a democratic general candidate against the Republican state Senator. I won both of those races. That was like a, uh, under the Fix Albany banner and uh, really going after Joe Bruno and Shelly Silver at the time. And I won. And I was young and I was successful and I was, wow, everything, I could do anything. And I was very passionate about the issue, if uh, you recall, about property taxes was a really big issue that was crushing the people uh, of Long Island, really uh, other parts of the state, not so much New York City at the time. And... Uh, I was very passionate about reforming the government and uh, didn't really realize that how complicated and how challenging it was to win a primary in New York State. And uh, so I was very idealistic, uh, but really not very, very um, schooled in the way of, of, of big school, big league politics. So you had all these successes leading up to 2006. You're young, you're idealistic, you have a proven track record of winning. When did you realize that your race against Spitzer wasn't going according to your initial plan? Probably in the middle of the summer, June, July. I had decided back then that, you know, I wasn't going to pull out of the race. And my goal was really to, to work as hard as possible, maybe lightning would strike, but really not to embarrass myself and to put on a and, – and, and to push for the ideas that I cared about so much which was related to reform and related to property taxes. Like, what was it about the midsummer that that was the indicator that said, oh, geez, it's not going right? I realized how important it was to have institutional support. It's a big state. You know, I'd always relied very much on retail politics in my own organization and, uh, you know, trying to persuade people. And, you know, you'd travel for five hours to some place upstate New York and you'd show up and there'd be eight people there. You'd be like, oh, my gosh, what am I doing? This is the most painful thing I've ever done voluntarily in my life. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the question I wanted to know, because you talk to politicians all the time and they say there's a feeling that, you know, like, you know, that you're not winning and you know that you might not win. And so besides going to diners and it's, you know, 
eight people that your mom called to to come there. Like, what else does that feel? Well, you know, Spitzer was a giant, if you remember. Yeah. I mean, he was the sheriff of Wall Street. He had every institutional support. He'd be endorsed by everybody and their brother. And I'd been through that before at the county level. And county, Nassau County is not small. I mean, it's a big place. It's one one and a half million people, 1.3 million people. I had one before, and I realized retail politics, persuading individual people, getting people excited was just not something you could do on that larger scale. Mm-hmm. And you people would not were not inspired by the issue of reform or, po- or property taxes. Mm-hmm. So it just was not, it was not inspirational enough of a, an issue and there was not enough organizational Support. heft to do it. I mean, you know, New York state politics very much influenced by the democratic organizations, by the unions, by the different groups of, of activist groups. You know, now a lot of progressive groups that have grown even since that time uh, that are much more influential and much more organized than they had been uh, back in those days that have an organization. And I really didn't have that organizational heft. So the people you did have, the pollsters, the ad makers, the campaign staff, at what point did you start Look, all politicians believe in their own success, and I can do it because I've done it, and the things you've done before. That was work. my campaign thing. Remember that I can do it because I've done it. So everybody <laughs> and we want to know <laughs> what the it is. And, and this, in this case, whenever, whenever governor, you didn't do it. And, and, and but what point do you start wondering these people who I'm paying money to, who are, are vested with this, are, they're blowing smoke, or that their interests are diverging from yours? I think that I think that everybody else was even more realistic than I was. I was probably the most delusional as far as the possibility of me winning. I think that, uh, you know, the professionals realized that what a difficult challenge this was from, from day one. And they were straight with you about that, you'd say? I, 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 I don't really recall. I don't really, you know, I have no recriminations or anything about that. I was, I was young and idealistic and passionate and cocky. And, and you know, it was a, listen, it was a great experience. I learned a tremendous amount from that experience. You know, Spitzer, a year later, Spitzer was against the idea of a property tax cap, a year later appointed me as chairman of the New York State Commission on Property Tax Relief. And, you know, the issue that I cared about so much, I was now in charge of trying to uh, write a report. I did write a report on it and actually persuade people throughout the state of New York that this was the way that we had to go in order to address this very vexing problem. So I I won on that policy issue over time. I just want to go back to something you said about retail campaigning. Mm -hmm. You had won these insurgent campaigns on a county level, on a local level, Mm -hmm. where retail campaigning really had value, Mm -hmm. but scaling it statewide, Mm -hmm. you said that there was a challenge. Can can you just walk us through what you learned about the size of the state and what it meant to just run outside of Nassau? It's geographically huge, our state. I mean, these are pretty straightforward, simplistic things, but I mean, it's geographically a huge place. The media markets are completely different. Uh, you know, when I was running on Long Island, I mean, it was, you know, Newsday and News 12 were really, you know, the main factors. I mean, the New York Times was also a factor as well. Uh, but there weren't as many media outlets. Now you have these different media markets. Uh, you need a lot of money in order to break into the five boroughs, obviously, the New York City media market. I didn't have the relationships in the, all the different pla- geographical locations. It's a big place. It's complicated. And people are not that interested. Uh, People were not that passionate about the issues I was talking about, property taxes and reform of New York state government. I mean, you've got to remember that New York state 
issues of corruption and people getting arrested and indicted and things like that. I would, I would campaign on the fact that more people had been indicted in the New York State Legislature than had lost their jobs at the polling booth. How can there be such unpopularity of the New York State Legislature, yet 95% of them get reelected? You know, people are just not that interested. And you know, since that time, property taxes became a much bigger issue. Reform of Albany certainly became a big issue. Joe Bruno, Dean Skelos, Shelley Silver, that's, I mean, I was really canary in the coal mine. <laughs> Unfortunately, this canary died <laughs> in the process. Do voters but, care now, though? I mean, we don't I think they, I, No, I think, I think voters care. I think voters are generally disgusted with politics uh, at all levels. They're sick and t- they hate politics and they are pox on all their houses. They don't like anybody. Uh, it's one of the reasons that Trump, he was elected in the first place and has continued to have this base of support because he continues to portray himself as like, no, I'm not a politician. I don't know what I'm doing politically. And people just want something done. I mean, we see this all the time in political science theories where, you know, do you hate Congress? Yes. Do you like your congressman? Nah. Sure. I'll vote for him again. I don't think it's as simple as that. I think it's, you know, we've got all these safe seats in America. There's 435 seats in the United States Congress. Of the 435 seats... Yeah, in the House, in the House of Representatives. Of those 435 seats, 380 of those seats, roughly not exact number, are safe seats. Mm-hmm. Solidly safe. 190 Republican seats, 190 Democratic seats, just to make it bipartisan, are safe seats. You can't lose because of gerrymandering. The way these districts are drawn, 190 Republicans, if you're the Republican, you're going to win. 190 Democrats, if you're the Democrat, you're going to win. The only way you can lose is a scandal, of which there's too many of those, which is goes back to more people who've been indicted than have lost their job at the polling booth. The only way you can lose is lose a primary. Who votes in the primary? The people that vote in the primary for the Republicans are far to the right. The people who vote in the Democratic primary are far to the left. And so what happens with all these people in these safe seats is they are loath to do th- too many things in the middle, which is where the solutions usually lie. And because if they do, they're going to lose a primary. And they're going to be running – someone's going to run against them from the Democrats from the left, Republicans to the right. Hence Joe Crowley. Hence Eric Cantor. And what happens is all of these elected officials in these safe seats or many of these elected officials in these safe seats find themselves appealing just to their bases, to the far right and the far left, instead of actually solving the problems that the people, the general public want done. And this is why nothing gets done why there's so much gridlock, why there's so much divisiveness. You layer on top of that Fox News, MSNBC, you layer on top of that uh, money, and you end up with this divided country. You know, one of the things we heard last week was a slightly different version of that, which was Mayor de Blasio was sitting where you're sitting with the microphone, basically. Actually, we were in Gracie Mansion. But he said progressives are coming into a new era, and they're coming out of the DLC darkness. Mayor Bill de Blasio. What I think is happening now, which I'm thrilled about, is we're sort of coming out of the DLC darkness. Democratic Leadership Council. Centrist, centrist, centrist Democrats. Coming out of the DLC darkness. Uh, and the progressives are ascendant and are the future of the party. And there's a lot of pieces of that. And Bernie's uh, uh, campaign is the single most powerful element. But stuff was going on well before Bernie. To the Democratic Leadership Council, which, as you remember from the 90s, was sort of what you're talking about, where Democrats were sort of moving to the center and having ideas and policies that Republicans could embrace. Mm -hmm. Your argument is sort of that that ascendance, that that move towards progressives going to the left, Republicans going further to the right, that that's going to be 
more challenging and less productive. The mayor was sort of arguing a clearer ideological pathway is better. Yeah, but the, the, there's still a small group of each side. You know, there may be a, a, an ascendancy of the Tea Party, or had, there was a few years ago, and there may be an ascendancy now of the progressive left, but it's still not a huge, it's not all, it's not the large popular. Mike Dukakis and Walter Mondale and George McGovern still got about 40% of the vote. And Barry Goldwater still got about 40% of the vote. And a lot of the people that could go either way are somewhere in the middle. And it's a small 20%. So I would argue that, you know, and how many people vote in the primary? I mean, this is not me saying this off the top of my head. This is 15% of the people vote in primaries. And it's Republican primary, Democratic primaries, 15%. So the big movement that changed the world, the eruption of Joe Crowley losing to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was 28,000 people voted out of 240,000 people in that district. And, and just for comparison, when you ran in 2006, you got 138,000 votes. I did? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow, I can't believe that. 18% of the votes. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think I got 19%. You know what? what well, no, 19.6 if I want to be precise. No, what I, what I tell people is that, you know, whenever they're upset about something that's in the newspaper that's written about them, is that, you know, you think everybody's paying attention. And here I lost this race. I was humiliated. It was terrible. And uh, I was like, how am I going to face people? This is such a humiliation. It's on the front page of the local papers. And so I go to the gym the next day, the YMCA that I worked out in Glen Cove. It was Thursday, actually. And I go and I was like, how am I going to face people? This is so embarrassing. And I'm working out on the elliptical machine. And a guy walks in and he looks at me and he puts his head down. I'm like, oh, my gosh, he can't even look at me. This is so humiliating. I'm so embarrassed. This is uh, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. He, a few minutes later, the guy comes over. He says, hey, how's it going? I was like, oh, not too good. You know, he's like, what's the matter? I said, well, I got crushed in this race. He goes, it's over? <laughs> <laughs> he says, I've been telling all my friends to vote for you in Queens. So, you know, we all think everybody's paying attention and people are just not, you know, it's a small group of people that actually vote. Right. So, so you're a second generation public servant at this moment when you have Donald Trump's and Cynthia Nixon's and people who've never run for office. As you're saying, voters are broadly sick of politicians. You've been doing this for a long time, as you were saying, and winning and winning, and then, then you had a losing, losing. So So Spitzer and then the Tea Party wave, when I think you were the biggest local Democrat. Lost to Man Ed Mangano. Mm -hmm. So Spitzer, look what happened to Spitzer. Mangano, he got indicted. He's on trial for bribery. So the, the rule is anybody who beats me in a race, their right, life, life is over after that. <laughs> so you don't want to beat me in a race. It's a curse. It's so a you, curse. You were out for a minute, right? And you, you start making some private sector money. You're living a different sort of life. Maybe you're seeing more of your family. And then you run for Congress. Like, like. Why keep doing it? Someone said to me when I was young that uh, I said I said to them, I said, I don't know if I want to be in politics because I want to make the world a better place to live in or because uh, I like the excitement. It's fun to do or because I have a big ego and I like when people clap for my speeches and say, hey, yeah, you're doing, you know. It's... And he said, well, all three of those things are probably going to motivate you. You're a human being. He says your challenge is to really aspire to your more noble ambitions. And that's what I try to do. I, I I still feel very idealistic. I think I, I'm more of an idealist without illusion now than I was before. You know, I've got more sense. And I, I really believe in public service. I believe in America. I believe in politics. I believe in democracy. And I feel like I've learned so much. I mean, I really – I mean, I've been doing this for a long time compared to other people that I've really learned how this stuff works and how to get things done. And I, it would be a waste for me to squander that and not use it. And I, I, I enjoy it. I, I really believe in it. So, so give us some of your thoughts on 
your observations on 2018, right? I mean, you've, you've been to this rodeo before. You were running against someone who was essentially the heir apparent. He had the endorsements. He had, you know, money and statewide connections. You're looking at Cynthia Nixon as a relative novice. She definitely doesn't have your CV at the time, but um, she's running against an incumbent in Andrew Cuomo. What are some reflections on 2018? Well, let me just make it clear that 2018 is very important to me because I have an election that I have to run for re-election as <laughs> the United States Congress, and I'm not in one of those safe seats. I'm in one of those 50-50 seats. Mm-hmm. I'm in what's called D plus one. Uh, but regarding the, the the governor's race, you know, it's it's the governor's race to lose. He's you know he's the heir apparent. He's the he's got the organizational. He's got the name recognition. He's got a a very substantial record of accomplishment. Uh, he's got tremendous organization. He's got money. He's got all those advantages uh, that go with it. Uh, and and again, I, I believe a very accomplished record. Cynthia Nixon, unlike me in my race, has organizational support, not the same type of organizational support that the governor has from the, the Democratic organization, from many unions, from many progressive groups. Uh, but she has organizational support from, you know, Working Families Party and from other uh, progressive institutional types. Uh, so it's very, um, it's very unlike the race that I went through, where I was really coming in kind of like the Tom Swasey organization, which was not going to, it was going to get you 19% of the vote. <laughs> when you watch this, what do you see that you wish you had done? And what do you see that you think? This is not going to work out. I, I don't. I, I can't think of it in those terms of like a, what I wish I would have done or something like. That. I mean, it's that's you have to ask the question differently. I you know I have no regrets about what I did before, and I can't. What is she guess. doing right then? I think that she's got a you know she has an organization. You know, she's not just out there on her own. She's got you know the WFP is very impactful. It's a very you know it's a statewide organization, and uh, she's got issues that she's running on. You know, she's got other issues that I think that you know just won't fly. I mean, you know, like what? Like she's like she's not for the property tax cap. I mean, that's you know, it goes back to my my politics. I mean, it's And who are you supporting in the, in the race? Out of Cuomo or, or Nixon or I know you have your support of the governor, yeah. Okay. Governor Cuomo. And and for attorney general, you have someone in your delegation, Sean Patrick Maloney who's running, but there's also there's James, Lisa Eve, uh, I haven't made an official endorsement. Uh Would you like to? But I would uh, but, but Tish James, I'll, I'll I'll vote for Tish James. Why? Um, I think she's she's a, a, a got a great record. She's been around. She knows what she's talking about. And uh, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for Sean Patrick Maloney. We really need him in the House. Quite frankly, he's a very tremendously talented person. He's a, he's a good guy. Uh, like him personally. And just to stay on the tish change for, for one half a second, she's been sort of criticized for not taking on the cleanup Albany as thoroughly as some other people like uh, Zephyr Teachout or, or some other people might have wanted to hear. I'm, I'm wondering if, if cleaning up Albany is a paramount issue in your mind for that position, or is it about Trump and what that AG office can do? I think it's about both of those issues. I think both of those issues are very important. And uh, I think that whoever is going to be the next attorney general has to focus on, on both of those issues. You say you have no regrets. When I signed up for your campaign, you just cut an ad that was a lot of the money you had in the bank. And uh, it was on a cold day, and it was like your introductory. It was ad. freezing cold. I couldn't mm-hmm. hardly even move my jaw. It was so cold. Mm-hmm. And it affected your position. Yep. Yeah. And and it was hey, you know, I'm Tom Swazi. I'm here to clean up things, and this is me. This did not serve as a full introduction, and it's like what people told you to spend a lot of your campaign money on. And I just got in there, and in hindsight, it was like, wait, 
Oh, that was a a major regret of mine. I have. I, I will say a regret. <laughs> okay. This was this was a, like we, a major mistake. Go. I should have not spent any money until the last several weeks of the election. The idea was we we're going to spend money, and I was going to increase my name recognition and try and increase my poll numbers and introduce myself to people. And then more money comes in. And ideally. then more money would come in ideally, and that was just a very bad, stupid. Ca- I actually had millions of dollars, which is unlikely for such an you know unlikely candidate. Where was your money coming from? I had raised a lot of money because I was a county executive in Nassau County, uh, and I raised a lot of money from people who didn't like Spetzer. And I raised a lot of money from people that just, uh, you know, were sick of – actually liked the idea of fix Albany, the idea of, like, cleaning out the corruption in Albany. So I had money, but I spent it very poorly. And if I had to do it over, over – there was two things I would have done over. One was um, I would have saved all the money till the end and just spent all the money at the end and try and, and try and use that for media in the New York media market at the last minute when people are actually paying attention. And the second thing was is that I was attacked on um, – I was talking about congestion pricing in those days. And uh, nobody, was, nobody was talking about congestion pricing in those days. Issues. Nobody was talking about congestion pricing in those days. And I, I talked about congestion pricing and it was you know attacks on Long Island Expressway. It was like the front page of Newsday or something like that. And I got terrified. And I, you know, I, I kind of walked the whole thing back. And I really realized one thing I realized from uh, that I learned big lesson was is when you have something, even if it's controversial, if you believe in it, you got to run right into it and just keep on going and running and running. And you'll continue to get more attention in the tabloids and it'll increase your name recognition in the process. So if you actually believe in it, in the issue, even if it's controversial, it's a great way to increase your your name recognition. Speaking of name recognition. These are the 2006 Albany Insider All-Stars. These are the guys that I was going after. These did make tabloid attention. They were mostly to console the staff at the point where it's queer that this was going to be a loss and you had some fun. Where are these guys now? What do you think? Joe Bruno. Yeah, where's he at? I'm, I don't know where Joe is right now. So, so for the- Elliot Spitzer. So for listeners, no, these are baseball cards that the campaign had created. What do you do when you're working on a gubernatorial campaign and you're going to lose and lose real bad? Well... What we did was put out baseball cards with the Albany Corruption All-Stars, complete with trivia facts on the back. And the beautiful thing that makes them so collectible is how many of these people are either in prison, highly relevant to our politics still, or both, including Senator Pothole Alphonse D'Amato, Shelley Silver, Joe Bruno, and a bunch of other fascinating bums you might mention. Hey, John Faso. Hey, Elliot Spitzer. And Tom was a good politician instead of saying his impressions, some of which he may have shared previously, is just saying the names. Shelly Silva. All right. <laughs> Has Albany been cleaned up? Has Albany been cleaned up? I mean, there's still, listen, there's problems in Albany and there's problems in America and there's problems in legislatures throughout the country because of a lack of competition. Democracy only works. Like capitalism only works when there's competition. You have to have a threat that if I don't do a good job, if I don't give the people what they want, I'm going to lose what I have. And right now, most of the seats in the New York State legislature, like most of the seats in the Congress, are safe seats. And when you don't feel that you have to listen to the people and not just your little sliver of your base because you're worried about a primary, but you got to listen to the people – 
then you will not do the work that's necessary to solve the problems that the people want done. And that's a problem in New York State. That's a problem in, in America. Uh, that's a problem in any elected government where there's not competition. It was a problem in the Soviet Politburo. You know, it's a, when you don't have to listen to the people, democracy doesn't work. Julius Cuomo is barely debating and mostly trying to ignore his opponent again. I think the I think the governor is very responsive. I mean, you know, he's 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 he changes uh, the the things that he talks about as far as priorities based upon what the people are saying, and I think that he's tried to be responsive, and I think he's accomplished a, a great deal. Do you recall your debate with uh, Spitzer in two thousand six? Yeah, I can't. I don't really remember the details, but if you bring up something specific, maybe I'll remember something. You know what? I, I do remember where I really screwed up was uh, right before the debate. They had put my debate book on the stage, and that was supposedly against the rules or something. And he freaked out at me. I mean, he. I. I. I saw the full Spitzer. I'd never seen that before. The full Spitzer. I mean, he was like everything everybody talked about when he loses his temper. I He. I encountered. I can't remember all the details, but it was like, you know, really came at me really hard. And uh, and he threatened to walk out. I should have said, go ahead, walk out. I would have gotten so much press. But he didn't walk out. So, What does it look like, the full Spitzer? Oh, it was, it was just, it was, he was so angry. He was so, so rage. It was crazy. Like, how do you keep calm and cool when you're running against this headwind? You don't have this establishment. Things aren't going well. And something unexpected happened. You seem to have kept your cool, good humor. You're here today. What's your secret to just keeping it all together as all these things are going up and down? Well, first of all, and, I, I, and I, I want to tack on something really quickly because I think this is like a gender component that I talk to a lot of my students and colleagues about. Oftentimes when women lose a race, they're done. Like they tried and then they walk away. You have, you've won, but you've you've lost. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you were a boxer, you know, you'd have some interesting numbers, right? What tacking on to Ozzy's question, what is inspiring to you to sort of get up again and just keep running for office I, even history. when it doesn't work out? History. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm very inspired. I I read the um, book 1776, which was by David McCullough. It's about George Washington. George Washington lost every battle. I mean, he lost every battle. He lost in. He lost in Manhattan. He lost on Long Island, Battle of Brooklyn, Battle of Long Island. Came back, lost in Manhattan again, lost in uh, the, uh, in Harlem. He lost in uh, uh, White Plains. He lost in Fort Lee, New Jersey. He lost all across New Jersey, and he crossed the Delaware into Pennsylvania. And if the British followed him into Pennsylvania, the whole revolution would have been over if they had gone back to where the Declaration of Independence was written. But he went forward, and he won that battle yeah. at Trenton, and it changed the whole course of human history. Right. So I'm very inspired by history, and I see in history that it's never a straight line, and that uh, you know all the stuff that we hear about never give up, and you know you got to fight for what you believe in, and all the stuff we were weaned on as kids. I actually believe that stuff, mm -hmm. and it's proven true for me. I mean, I'm I'm I was dead as a doorknob politically, obviously, and uh, you know I had a uh, I'm back and I'm enjoying it. It's one of the one of the best times I've ever had, learning so much, armed services, foreign affairs. Well, yeah. what's, so what's next? I mean, you know, you've got you've to win it. I've got to win in November. Yeah. Okay. Hopefully I didn't make any news today. <laughs> I don't know, we'll see. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, if you could, I know you don't like to look back, but looking forward, you know, 
Yeah, right now I'm, I'm loving my job. I really love my job. I'm on Armed Services and Foreign Affairs. You know, I question General Mattis. I question the Secretary of State, Tillerson before, now Pompeo. I am learning so much. I'm meeting with smart people. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to change things. I mean, <laughs> this is the smartest group I've met with all week. Um, you know, I'm looking at income inequality. I mean, the idea of, you know, what we have to do to save the middle class in this country. I'm very, very fortunate to be in this position. I'm actually honored and humbled to be in this job. Would you, and the last question is, you did the 2006 Albany Insider All-Stars. Will you come out with another edition? I doubt that I'll ever do the baseball cards again. (laughs) Tom Swazi, thank you so much. Thanks, Ozzy. Thank Thank you, you, Professor. (laughs) Thank you, Harry. F-A-Q. In the next episode, we're going to talk about the Attorney General's race. Ooh, la la. Are there any... Are there any are there any what? attorney general Are there any attorney generals in New York that we'd want to talk to? Attorneys general, motherfucker. <laughs> That's true. It is it is it is attorneys general. But I mean what about past attorneys general? Maybe Andrew Cuomo would want to come in and talk about the job. Aaron Burr mm-hmm. was our Ooh, no, Aaron New Burr. York Attorney General. Ooh, that, that. We should do it like just list off all of the names as fast as we can next week of all of the famous attorney generals in all of history. And then and Martin then we Van can just Europe. very quickly do all the women who've served statewide in uh, New York. <laughs> Are those crickets? Yes. Christina, Professor Christina Greer is making cricket <laughs> That's sounds. That's how I whistle. Barbara Underwood. Cricket, cricket. Right, Barbara Underwood. No, there have to be a lot more crickets. Though. Oh, cricket, 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 cricket. I can layer this. Okay. <laughs> We're funded by a grant from Civil, which is rewriting the economics of journalism. Our show was produced by Alex Brooklyn. We'll see you next week. Powered by caffeine and alcohol. Drink them. <laughs> news. New, 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 news. New York City. F-A-Q. F-A-Q.